Well, this morning, part three, great expectations. This week, the church God can use. Now we're reversing field. Now what are the pastor's expectations of us? You see, clarifying expectations is what this series has been all about. You say, what? He has expectations of us? I do want to clarify this. Clearly, a pastor worth having in a church comes with a towel and basin. He is a servant. He's not asserting his rights, but I got to tell you, from my experience, the things I'm going to share with you today might help him transition here really well. So what kind of anticipation do you have? Are your hearts full today? Are you looking forward to the the changes of the future? But I got to tell you, every pastor who comes to a a new church wants to pastor a church that does the following six things, the following six things. Now, lest you think I completely invented this out of my own mind, thinking when I go to my next church, I'd like these six things, Eyewitness News was in Chicago this week, and I interviewed Pastor Scott Cagle over the phone. (laughs) Eyewitness News has actually nothing to do with that, but I got your attention. And so, actually, I'll let you know when I'm sharing what his thoughts are versus what my thoughts are in the course of our sermon. This is the first time in months that I'm not going to have you stand and read a portion of Scripture because I'll be all over the Scriptures today. You better get your pens ready to go, get your outlines out. First of all, What kind of church are we going to be? Every pastor wants a church that, number one, affirms the vision that God has laid on his heart. Every pastor wants a church who will affirm the vision that God's laid on his heart. Now, there's a a little phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, talking about Paul. He says, follow me as I follow who? Christ. And so we follow him because he follows Jesus Christ. Now, Instantly, some of you say, wait, 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 time out. We're not supposed to follow men. We're supposed to follow God. Yes, but God always uses key leaders in the Scripture to lead His people. Amen? Amen. You see that throughout the Old Testament. Now, I wasn't planning to do this, but I think I'm going to do it. Old Testament leaders that people had to follow. Now, were they perfect? No. Did they have flaws? Yes. And so the trick is for us to follow God as he follows God. We follow a leader, he follows God, and we work together. So in the Old Testament, we had people like Moses, right, who led the people, although even Moses had his fatal flaws. And as we've gone through the Old Testament scriptures, we know that following a man can be difficult. And so I want to make sure we have this caveat. We're not just yes men or yes women, but we do need to follow the leadership of the pastor, not just mere blind allegiance. Now, we have checks and balances here. What is it called? It's called plurality of leadership. And so there is one senior pastor, but there is a group of currently five elders. And just so you know, we haven't forgotten about the fact that we need to add some more elders. That'll be happening later this spring and again in the fall uh, to have maybe a more fuller complement. We want Pastor Scott to be able to weigh in on that. Now, the question is, as you follow the vision that God lays on his heart, it's going to take some time for that to to bubble up and for him to be able to share that. So don't expect that in the first four weeks of, of his ministry here. Don't expect it necessarily in the first four months. 
But I want to ask you a question. Will you allow the new pastor to make changes? Now, here's where I've always find this interesting. Right now, sitting right here, everybody goes, oh, of course, Pastor John, we're going to allow him to make changes. Until the change is something you care deeply about. Now, let's, let's go to some serious meddling. What if he changed it up a little bit on agape? <gasps> yeah, we can all, let's all del- take a deep breath every time I say something. So agape, one, two, three. Ooh, what about, what about Awana? Whoa. What about lambs or precepts Bible studies? Oh, forget it. You never mess with the women. Just get that straight. If mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, all right? So those are just three examples, but there's clearly change is in the air. And so will we allow him to make changes? What if he changes or moves us away from doing ministry the way we've always done it? What if we don't like the changes? Those are all things that you need to prepare your hearts for. So I asked him about that very question. He asked me to share these two things with you. Number one, he said, would you be flexible? Would you be willing to try new things and see things tweaked, especially as it relates to outreach? And number two, he said, would you show grace and patience to him as he gets acclimated to a new environment and give him permission to make a few mistakes? I love this guy. He's so humble. He's moving his family halfway across the country. Now, arguably, I saw some of the Facebook posts of you rubbing it in the beautiful Malibu beaches versus the frigid, you know, frozen chosen of the north. But there's still a lot of change. Their kids got to change schools. In fact, they're going to homeschool for this this part of the spring semester because they don't want to keep moving them around, and there's all kinds of changes there. They're moving into a, a condominium, and Lord willing, uh, it all went through, and the deposits in, cars were shipped, movers come tomorrow, lots of change. So I want to say, number two, not only follow him as we, he follows Jesus Christ, but change is inevitable. Change is inevitable. But why in the world do most people not like it? Let's just pause for a moment and just talk about change and why it's hard for us. Number one, for some of you, it's about your personality, You are just wired for the status quo. And if you don't think it's true, look around yourself and say, when was the last time you didn't sit where you're exactly sitting today? (laughs) I'm pretty sure if it's Sunday, this is the group that sits in this row right here, all right? I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm feeling better that you guys are in your proper order in the front row here, all right? All right? What was that? And so, you're out, move up, all right. So personality, um, if you say, oh, outside, then do I sit different places? No, then ask yourself, what do you have for breakfast nearly every day, if that doesn't change? Number two, past experiences. Some of you don't like change because of past experiences. It tells you this, this isn't going to go well, and you just have that sick feeling in your stomach. Maybe you've had a painful transition in the past, clearly, and with no humor here. You've had a boatload of changes, friends. I didn't really realize when I preached here on July 15th last summer what God was going to do in this place over the last eight months. You have been through years, almost a decade of change. 
And the constant are the people who are still sitting in this room. And it's a testament to God's faithfulness to you and your stubborn determination not to give up on this place. Amen? It's a, it's a partnership uh, between you and God. And number three, the third reason change is difficult and we don't like it is because we're fearful. We're fearful. The unknown causes us angst. It tests our very foundations. Do we really believe that God is sovereign? Now, some of you have been so kind to me. So, Pastor John, what are you going to do? I have no idea. But God is faithful. Hopefully next week, I'll have a better clue than I do this week. But the bottom line, it does not change my commitment to a sovereign God that He's always taken care of us, He's always provided, and there is a future place for Cheryl and I. And I want to clear the record if it's been at all unclear. I am 100% excited about Scott and Adrian Cagle coming to be the new pastor of your church and his wife to join him. I have always said I never came to be your daddy, but I do want to be your favorite uncle, all right? <laughs> Just saying, I think that's a good role for me to play. I'll tell you more next week about what, where we'll be and what we're doing, Lord willing. Number two, every pastor wants a church that believes the best but, and does not assume the worst, especially when we disagree, that believes the best doesn't assume the worst when we disagree. Let me make it clear. There will be conflict. There will be conflict. And we should not see conflict as an exceptional thing that happens in the church. But it is normal in the course of working through things. And so how are you going to process conflict once the new pastor comes? And again, Pastor Scott's own words, he's asked you to do two things as it relates to conflict. Number one, would you reconcile with each other and make sure conflict gets resolved biblically? And that you're in the process of doing that, that you diffuse gossip and um, that you would dif diffuse the kind of the conflict that goes along with gossip. And then number two, he's asked that you would look forward, not backwards. That we look forward on what God has in store for us, not look backwards about the pain of our, of, of our past. And that doesn't mean that there isn't some disappointment for some of you. We understand that. But it's time to reconcile. It's time to move forward. Now, here's the funny thing about pastors. We go to pastor a church, and we never realized where the critics come from. You know, we know from Scripture, John 16, in this world you will have what? Trouble. When Nehemiah's building the wall, he had trouble from without, right? All kinds of critics. But the harsh reality is some of our worst critics come from within, not from without. And I want to caution you, please, please, let's be gentle when you disagree with Pastor Scott or any of your staff or any of the elders or any of the deacons or any of the deaconesses, all of the leaders of the church. When you disagree, would you be gentle in your critique? Would you avoid being harsh 
and critical. You see, a critical spirit can destroy a pastor's confidence, let me tell you. And so, if you're about to say something, and it's not just to, to Pastor Scott, but to all of us in leadership, ask yourself this question. Is what I'm about to say going to edify that person or exasperate that person? You know, I've told you kind of candidly, when I went to be a senior pastor the first time, I was the interim senior pastor at a church in Cyprus. And I had a wonderful experience there. It was very similar to being the pastor here. Uh, you, when you're the interim, usually when they've called you, it calls for desperate measures and there's desperate times. And you go, blah, 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 blah. They go, oh, thank you, Jesus. You go, blah, 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 blah. They go, oh, that's so profound. You go, blah, 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 blah. And they keep listening to you. And I realize sometimes we treat our guests better than we do our own family. So let me just remind you, treat your staff as if you would an honored guest who comes here to preach on Sundays. Treat him in a way that says, hey, we understand this is hard. We realize we are a diverse group out here that are not easily pleased, that we all have our own opinions. And quite frankly, and, and he knows this, pastor, we've been here longer than you have. Well, that works for the first, you know, 20, 30 years, and then he may outlive some of you, all right? <laughs> so what does he need? What does he need? First of all, I think he needs our affirmation, not our accusations. Number two, he needs our accountability, but he doesn't need our micromanagement. Number three, he needs confirmation. He needs confirmation. He shouldn't have to fish for compliments. When he preaches a good sermon, let him know. When he does something that, that is right on, take the time to write that email, send off that note. By the way, I got two of the nicest notes this day, and if I, if I showed you one of them, you'd say, wow, when is the last time you got a handwritten letter than the cursive, this is an example of cursive writing, let me tell you. And she said some very nice things, and then another letter from one of our families in the church. Keep sending those. By the way, we're talking this week. He goes, these people are unbelievable. We're getting like a letter almost every day. I said, really? What a surprise. <laughs> I pause. He goes, did someone organize that? Only God knows for sure, Scott. <laughs> he goes, Every day we can't wait to open our mailbox. If some of you don't know what that's about, many of you signed up to send a letter every day for 30 days. He's loving it. They're making a little scrapbook out of all those letters. <laughs> Lastly, be an encouragement, not his exhorter. Be his Barnabas. Don't be his kind of, hey, this is what you got to do, Pastor, now that you've been here 12 days. All right? Number three, every pastor, every pastor wants a church that's committed to the teaching and preaching of God's Word without, without it becoming the sole litmus test of his success. Scott's got to get time to grow into this preaching role. No matter how many times you've spoken at camps and conferences and to young adults and maybe even down to pulpit supply, there is nothing that compares to the awesome responsibility of standing in front of you every single week, 
knowing that you are charged with declaring, thus saith the Lord. And that is a powerfully life-changing, frightening prospect for most of us as pastors. We do not take this lightly. I agonize over the words. I'm done. I turn it in by Wednesday or Thursday, and then I change it, and then I agonize over that, and then I try to get Nancy to change the PowerPoint. I mean, it's craziness. That's why a lot of people just give you a blank sheet of paper, and they can go any way they want, right? Amen. Amen. You never know what God lays on my heart. And so, we're committed to teaching God's Word, but I want to talk a moment about something I've never said, bibliolatry. What is it? Be careful that we don't succumb to bibliolatry. It's the idea that we worship the Word more than God Himself. Now, you say, how does that come about? How do we, what's a proud example of we're kind of more into this than we are to the Creator Himself? It's when, for instance, here's just one example, when a method of preaching becomes more important, a la the form, than the function. So, I'm, I'm pretty much committed to expository preaching. So, this is a rare message where I'm kind of doing a topical thing. But you know what? God's people can learn from expository sermons. They can learn from topical sermons. They can learn from textual sermons. They can learn from character studies. They can learn from the big idea. There's lots of way to preach. But here's the test. When it's all said and done, a couple things you should ask yourself. Was Jesus Christ lifted up? At the end of the day, at the end of the month, and at the end of the year, am I just a little bit more like Jesus because of what I heard from the pastor and what I applied in my own life? And number three, if the pastor preaches something where there's legitimate differences of opinion in the body of Christ, my question is, be like the Brian, search it out for yourself. But in the end, be careful, be careful that we're not confusing form with function. Number two, Underneath this concept, biblical authority. Let's be clear. This pastor's coming because he is committed to this church and he believes you are committed to this concept of biblical authority. He is committed to biblical authority and he believes that God's word is the sole life-changing agent in our lives. The word of God and what that Holy Spirit does in your life, the combination is powerful. It's powerful. So he does not mince words when he says, sometimes the Bible says some hard stuff, and he's not going to compromise, and that makes it difficult. It makes it difficult to say the hard stuff to people who are still searching. And I, I've got to say something to you. Some of you in this room, even as I speak, you've come in the last eight months. You're still searching. You're still processing. I hope you believe that this is the place for you to be on that journey. This is the exact place. You maybe have not yet crossed that line of faith, but this is a safe place to ask those questions, whether it's in the Truth Project with Rocky, whether it's in your small group. You know, in this church, do you realize that many of you in this room came from a former faith tradition? It begins with C and ends in C. Some of you came from a cult and are now in this church. Some of you never even darkened the door of a church, and you showed up here, and the love and acceptance allowed you the space to say, maybe I'm not angry as much at God as I thought I was. And so, 
Because of that, let's remember about God's authority and His Word, two things. Number one, it is powerful. Hebrews 4.12, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is powerful. And number two, it is profitable. It is profitable. It's life-changing in four different ways according to 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. It is profitable. Awana kids, you remember this, it's profitable for four things. It's profitable for what? For doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And as I was studying this, isn't it interesting, even Paul, in his outline of the entire New Testament, followed those four things. Get to thinking about this. What's the most doctrinal book in the Bible? Romans. And then reproof. Where do you get reproof? You get it in First and Second Corinthians. And in fact, note to self, if he decides to go to First Corinthians within the first year, you are messed up, all right? You're in trouble. The joke is, if you're mad at your church, you preach through 1st or 2nd Corinthians. Correction. He wrote the book of Galatians. Who's bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? And then instruction in righteousness, what we've just finished, Ephesians and Colossians. So even Paul follows the format through his teaching through the New Testament. Number three, under this idea of, of the Bible... <clears throat> And the idea of teaching, this idea of being committed to proclaiming God's Word. Number three, be careful about the feed-me syndrome. Do you know what the feed-me syndrome is? This is that when we're so focused on the sermon and whether it meets my needs. Feed me, feed me. Now, I want you to be fed. And I hope over the last eight and a half months you have been fed. But guess what? It is not my sole responsibility to do the only feeding that you get. If you only ate once a week, like maybe some of us should, but the bottom line is if you only ate physically once a week, you, you wouldn't do very well. And if the only feeding we're getting is what I'm doing or what Pastor Scott's doing, we've got to, end, we've got to up our game a bit. And in fact, the bottom line is it's not about you. You say, Pastor John, it's been a wonderful eight months, but you're awfully, you're meddling again today. I know, I know, because I got one more shot next week. But it's not about you. Remember, Scott's preaching to a very diverse audience. Some of you are young. Some of you are older. Some of you are single. Some of you are married. Some of you are engaged. Some of you are divorced. Some of you are widowed. Some of you are new Christians. Some of you are seasoned saints. This place is a very diverse place. So it's not just about you. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. You've got to be responsible for your own spiritual growth during the week. You've got to be a self-feeder. I'm going to point out two guys that I know about, one on staff and one on the elder board, that are self-feeders. Where's John Nungester? Where is he? Is he he's, setting he's setting up. He's probably serving. He's right there. <laughs> that guy is always reading and studying and listening. I, you know, he missed a, a thing earlier this week. He, he borrowed some CDs and he's listened to men's fraternity tapes or men's summit stuff. You've got a youth pastor who's always reading and studying. I love that about him. He's feeding himself. The other one is our elder board chairman. Bill Berry amazes me. If you've ever been to a, looked at his cell phone, you should see how many podcasts are coming into that phone and the stuff he's listening to. I've never, probably in eight months, he, hey, I was listening to this podcast. I was listening to this. I was, the guy at his own expense flew to Dallas to learn more stuff about evangelism with, with um, 
ministry that I'm familiar with. And it goes on and on. I love it. I love it when I go, where are you? Where are you? I know you. Where are my precept ladies? Where are you? I see you. Thursdays, and I go in that room, that room, I mean, and their Bibles are open, their pens are out, and they are just soaking it in. Or lambs on Tuesday, studying. I know you're doing it in your small groups. Feed yourself during the week. Here's what something he can expect from you. He expects you to have time in the Word, that you're having a quiet time. And if you don't know how to do that, don't be afraid to ask, hey, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to study the Bible. I don't know how to feed myself during the week. We want to help you do that. And so I would suggest this as we close this section. Be committed to biblical application, not just knowledge acquisition. Apply the Word. Be doers of the Word, not just hearers. And then last point, don't be educated beyond your obedience. Don't be educated beyond your obedience. Sometimes I've barely finished applying what I shared with you last week, and then I give you more, and then I feel even more convicted about what I didn't do the previous week. One of the things that's the privilege of preaching is if you're applying the Word and you're not just preaching to the crowd, God changes you. He changes you. I'll tell you more about this next week. But this word has changed me because you were patient enough to let me preach to you over the last eight months. Remember that Sunday when I said, hey, we've got to make things right and you've got to go make right with people and talk to people and if there's somebody you haven't talked to, make it right? And I said, you can hold me accountable. I'll make that call. Well, I made that call the Monday after I preached that sermon. And the culmination of that experience was on Friday night when the four of us had dinner together at Lalo's and broke bread again. And there was great fellowship. But it was because of you and the preaching of God's word that I had to take care of something that I needed to deal with. And that's what I want you to have, that grace and freedom for each other and for Scott, because as he preaches, he doesn't want to be educated beyond his obedience. And so some of the best sermons will be what God lays on his heart as he's having a quiet time. And guess what? He may interrupt that series to go do something else that morning because God says, no, this is the message for this week. Number four, the fourth thing that every pastor wants from a church is that they would dedicate themselves to loving Jesus fully that they would dedicate themselves to loving Jesus fully. And the Scripture says in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. By the way, it's another passage where you get strength, heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is the great, greatest and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. Why will this church grow? I'll tell you why it's, it'll grow. It's because you love God and you love people. And when you're loving God first, that's the, the great commandment, then you can do Matthew 28, which is the great commission. But I think the great commission is predicated on the great commandment. Love God, love others. Love God, love people. And so how do you know? 
I have already said, you know if you're loving God more, if you're like Jesus a little bit more today than you were yesterday. Love God fully. Number five, every pastor wants a church that esteems each other in a way that the world notices, that you would esteem one another. And I'm going to let the Scripture just kind of drain over you without a whole lot of com- uh, comment. First of all, that kind of love, it's compelling. John 13, 34, and 35, they will know we are Christians by our love. It is a command. Romans 13, 8, let no debt remain outstanding except for continuing the debt to love one another. 1 John 4, 7, and we won't sing the song from our childhood days. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and whoever is loves is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not, da, 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 right? You got it? So it is a command. It is a part of our character, number three. It's a part of our character. The fruit of the Spirit starts with what? Love. Some believe that the interpretation of Galatians 5, 22 to 26, that love is the fruit of the Spirit, and everything else is an amplification of that one word. Or some take that those next several words are all different, equally important attributes. Love, every wedding I've practically do recently, they want 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's part of our character. And if we're loving one another, then we'll be unified, but we still pray for that. John 17, 22. In them, verse 23, in them and in me that you may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. It's compelling, it's a command, it's our character, and it's our commitment. And I would like to suggest that if you're in a small group, that the litmus test of whether your small group is actually working for you, it's not just something you're doing because you're stuck in that group and you've been in that group for 20 years. I hope that's not true. But if it is, then the one another's have to be apparent in our, in our groups, and it should be kind of bubbling out in this church. Now, you won't be able to write these all down. It'll be on the website by tomorrow night. You can just write them all down. But let me just remind you of all these one another's. That's what's attractive to the world. You want to be incarnational and missional? You live like this, and you, can't, you won't be able to contain the number of people who want to be in this room. Accept one. I'm just going to let the Scripture speak for itself. Accept one another. Romans 15, 7. Bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2. Bear with one another. Ephesians 4, 2. Notice you bear the burden, but sometimes you bear with. And, you know, by the way, everyone wants to bear with someone. I hope you're not the bear that people have to live with. You got my drift? All right? We don't want it to bear with you. All right? Number four, build up one another. Romans 14, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Look at all of them coming up there. Comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. Devoted to one another. Romans 12, 10. Encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. By the way, for those of you who are firstborns, I did put them in alphabetical order just for you, all right? Forgive one another. Ephesians 4, 32, Romans 12, 10. Honor one another. Also Romans 12, 10, the second part. Serve one another. Galatians 5, 13. Submit to one another. Ephesians 5, 21. 
And then be of the same mind with one another, Romans 15, 5. Simple question. Does the world see a difference in how we treat each other? If they don't, then we've got to make some adjustments. And these 13 one another's, or there's more, ought to be evident among us. And then number six. Every pastor wants a church that focuses on reaching lost people as a way of life. Every church should be focused on reaching lost people as a way of life. Not just because you go to the Harvest Crusade when Greg Laurie does his deal at Anaheim Stadium or at Dodger Stadium, but in your everyday life, you see that people are lost and need Jesus. And so you use every opportunity, whether it's praying with the waiter or waitress that serves you your lunch, whether it's being kind by how you tip your barber, your hairdresser, the conversations you have with your neighbors. For me, it's very easy to become isolated in the Christian bubble. Let me tell you, I have to constantly work at being salt and light with the people God puts in my path. But I want to remind you, Jesus came to do two things. Now, he did a bunch more, but these two things I can show you in Scripture. Luke 19.10 says what? Jesus came to what? Seek and to save the lost. That's what he did for us, friends. He found you. He came to seek and save the lost. Now, this is going to sound harsh. If we believe that hell is a real place, and I believe we do, then our goal is to tell people about Jesus and what He's done in your life. I think sometimes we don't talk about hell because it's a painful thing to have to think that maybe one of our loved ones is spending eternity apart from Jesus. I don't want to guilt trip you. I want grace to flood through your life But never forget that Jesus came after you. He wants you. He's passionate about connecting and having a relationship with you. Now, you got to be ready, right? You got to be ready. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. Hope that isn't with you. You want to share your faith? Some of you have been in the crucible of so much pain, it brings me to tears. But your steadfast hope in light of the trials that God is allowing you to go through is an unbelievable witness. Some in this room have lost their beloved in this past year. That witness is powerful in how you've trusted Jesus. Some of you have lost other loved ones. Your witness is unbelievable. And so I would say, whatever that difficulty is, there's still a hope. The second thing Jesus came to do is said in Matthew 28, 19, 20. He came to seek and save the lost, and He says He came to make disciples. He actually came to make disciples who would make disciples, according to Matthew 28. And remember, his last words to us was to not stay in the holy huddle. He said, what? Go. Go. 
I love it that our kids are being challenged to go this summer to serve, whether it's the Agape Tour or go to Russia. And by the way, if you're going, I'm just telling you right now, you got one more week to send me a letter. Checks in the mail, Jake. All right? <laughs> Checks in the mail. Went out yesterday. The bottom line is we have, just how we do it, we have a kingdom fund. We want to support those of you who want to go overseas and serve Jesus. Absolutely. And so we go. Now, there's all kinds of discussion, and we'll get into the debate today, but is this an attractional model or a missional model or an incarnational model? Here's what I know. I'm so grateful that Jesus saved me that I want to tell people that I come across why I do what I do. I don't have to be a pastor to do that. What I have to do is make the time to let Jesus use me to tell others about him. And then secondly, in this idea here of reaching the world for Christ, this idea of focusing on lost people is there is a balance between teaching and reaching. You know, we got embroiled in this stupid argument in the 80s about being purpose-driven, purpose, uh, I mean, seeker-driven or seeker-sensitive or seeker the Look it. Let's just be seeker-sensible. People need Jesus. You've got the answer. If they don't have a Bible, give it to them. If they feel uncomfortable, let them read it on the screen. If they don't know all the right words, tell them it's okay. And so the bottom line is it's important, and I want to make clear to you, and I've tried to model this, that I don't believe that teaching or reaching is an either-or proposition. If you haven't heard from me that I think preaching God's Word is important, then I've failed you. I believe preaching God's word is the singular most important thing I can do on a Sunday morning to equip the saints. But I also have to tell you that it isn't an either or. Let me ask you, what's more important to you? Is it about inhaling or exhaling? The takeoffs or the landings? Actually, that one, I, I would say landings. But anyway, um, <laughs> you can go bumpy, but we got to land the plane, all right? The bottom line is we got to do both, don't we? If we're going to make disciples, we've got to go. We've got to open our mouth, but then we've got to teach them to observe everything that God has laid on them. So what did Scott have to say about it? He just said this. Would you pray about having an inviting mentality? And he quoted this statistic. Over 80% of people that come to church for the first time, and I quote him, come on the arm of a friend. We've got to be bold in sharing our faith. I want to close right now by showing you one of the most powerful videos I've ever seen. But you need to know who this guy is and what he's about to say. You know him as a, as a uh, kind of a uh, Las Vegas show called Penn and Teller. This is Penn Gillette. He's six foot nine, and he's a thoroughly professed and convincing atheist. He's going to share with you about an experience that he had with a Christian who gave him a Gideon pocket Bible after a show. The exchange is remarkable, not for what that Christian did, although that's impressive. It's how he received it and how an atheist views what we're worried about, but he calls proselytizing. Check it out, and then I'll wrap up.
want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks and you know sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so we had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, you know, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of. Uh, proselytizing I mean he said I'm a businessman I'm I'm sane I'm not crazy and he looked me right in the eye and did all of this and uh, it was really wonderful I believe he knew that I was an atheist But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh... How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize 
and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, liked your show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. A good man opened his mouth, took the Gideon New Testament, and gave it to an atheist, who in his words says, how much do you have to hate someone if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell? That's God's sense of humor, isn't it? But let's make no mistake. If we're going to make a difference in this city, we have got to be a part of what Scott calls awkward evangelism, to be willing to engage in social media, to talk to people by making time when it is inconvenient, to allow people to sit in this place and discover without judging them. To allow all of our families know that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And maybe that seems like you're a little odd for God. But I say it's being transparent, it's being real, it's being genuine. And so I've offered this many times, but I want to say it once again. If you've been sitting here week after week listening to me open God's Word, and you have not yet made that decision to allow Jesus to come into your life, to change you from the inside out, to forgive you of your sins, today is the day. It's today. I got one more week with you, but today is the day. And we're going to do it a little differently. Elders, stand up right where you're at, and I want you to go outside. Just elders are standing up as I speak, and they're going outside on that patio right now. I know for some of you it's hard to come up here. There's worship. There's all that. This quiet conversation, staff, John will join. Just join anybody outside. Some of you deaconesses, get up out of your seats right now. If you would, go outside. I want some ladies out there too. And let's pray. Let's pray for people that you know during this last song who are far from God. It could be your son. It could be your daughter. It could be your extended family. It could be people in this room. It could be people you've prayed for. Let's pray for them. And today, if that's you, just walk backwards. Just go outside. Have a conversation. For others of you, you know that this place is that one time every week.
where if someone would be there to pray for you, you just want prayer. So if you want to be prayed for, just go outside. And we're going to lift up his name because he is the God of this city and this is why we are here. We're not here to play church. We're here to make a difference for eternity. Amen? Greater things have yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this city. believe it? Do we believe it? Amen. Well, we've talked about loving one another, about reaching the city. We've talked about the idea that they'll know there's something different in this place. So would you grab the hand of the person next to you, go across the aisles today, and you can use that hand sanitizer later. It'll, it'll be okay. All the way across here. Let's give it up as we pray to our Heavenly Father. And now, unto Him, who is the God of this city, who is the God who has changed our lives, who is the God who redeemed our lives from the pit, who is the God that we serve, unto you we give all power and dominion and majesty and worship now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.